Here we go. Acts chapter 20. Um, we're going to finish up the chapter today. We've been working through this chapter for three weeks now. Um, and we've taken our time because it's been really impactful and powerful. We kind of set it up that uh, scene that was taking place last week. And as I was reading through this and kind of just living my life uh, over the last two weeks, it occurred to me that we are not very good at figuring out how to live our lives in order to get the things we want from our lives. And, and you think that happens when you're a kid, right? Kids don't understand, like, the things they want in life, and they're like, you know, they eat too much candy, and they get sick, and like, I didn't want to be sick. Well, they're like, well, you shouldn't have ate the candy. And, um, and you think you get better at that, but you actually don't get any better at that. You just get better at hiding it. And uh, I was kind of reminded of that last week. I was eating a bar of chocolate, and uh, my youngest daughter, who's a year and well, almost two, uh, came up. She was like, I want candy. Now, my youngest daughter's name is Eve, and she is, if she wants to be, the cutest human on the planet. No offense to all you other parents who have ugly babies, but my kid, I'm just joking. Uh, my kid, like, if she says please and thank you, she's the cutest kid. Like, she just, just melts your heart, please, thank you. Like, just, it's great. Or she can be the most self-centered little gremlin of a sinner you've ever met in your life. And it's just whatever she feels like doing at the moment. So I'm eating this chocolate, and she comes up, she says, please. I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And uh, she had just taken a bath. I'd given her a bath. I'd put her in her jammies. Mom was out doing something. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to give you chocolate, but I'm going to hold it. Because the piece of chocolate I had in my hand was way too big for her to eat. And I didn't want her to get all messy after just taking a bath. Well, she didn't like that. She wanted the chocolate, and she wanted to hold the chocolate while she ate the chocolate. And I was like, no, you just take a bite. And she's like, ah! And I was like, oh, here we go, right? And she turns into Gremlin Eve, and she's screaming and yelling, no! And I was like, just take a bite, and you can have basically as much chocolate as you want. She's like, no! And so Jordan, my other daughter, who's three, hears what's going on, and she runs over, and she's like, chocolate? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to give it to you. You're going to have to take a bite. She goes, okay. So she takes a bite. So I'm having Eve stand right here next to Jordan and watching. Hopefully she gets it. Like, if I give Jordan the bite and Jordan doesn't have to hold it, Jordan is now eating the chocolate. But Eve still is just freaking out. She wants to hold the chocolate. Right? So this goes back for like 10 minutes. Jordan gets like six bites of chocolate. Eve doesn't get Evie. Eve's like, please. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hold it now. And like screaming. Finally, I put her on my lap and I hold her arms down and I put the chocolate like on her mouth. And she's mmm and stops crying immediately. And I was like, why, like, why did we have to do 10 minutes? Because by this time, right, she's been screaming for 10 minutes. Her face is all red. She's got, like, snot and, like, hair stuck in the snot and, like, the whole thing. And, like, Egh! she can't stop breathing. She's like, <laughs> you know how kids do. And I was just in my mind. I was like, why did we have to go through that 10 minutes of you freaking out for you to finally, like, take the bite? And then, like, it was kind of like the Lord. I don't know if this was the Lord or me just realizing, like, how me and the Lord act. The Lord was like, kind of frustrating, isn't it? Right? Because I live my life so often like, no, I want to hold it. And I want to control it. And I want to do it when I want to do it. And I read this book of uh, George Mueller. And George Mueller spent something crazy, like $21 million in his lifetime. And he did this thing when he was like in his 30s. He was pastoring a church. And he just decided, I'm going to trust God like I say I trust God. And he stopped taking a salary from his church. And he just put a box in the back. And 
whatever the people put in the box, that was what he was going to live on. But he didn't tell anybody. He said, if I tell people, that will manipulate them. So he just put a box in the back, didn't tell anybody what it was about, and just stopped taking a salary. And it was like over his lifetime, God gave him $21 million to spend, but he didn't get to hold any of it. God was like, I'll give it to you when you need to. And he built orphanages and churches. It's like it was just incredible walk by faith. And in his autobiography, he's like, I just want to, I write this down not to say like, oh, George Mueller is an incredible guy of faith, but I'm just a regular guy. I don't have a gift of faith. I just trust God, like he says. And that was one of the things we read as we were reading through Paul's last kind of words to the Ephesian elders last week, right? He was like, what if we trusted God like we say we trust God? And he was kind of explaining to these people, if you don't remember what's kind of going on here, Paul is on his way uh, through the area. He didn't want to stop in Ephesus, which is where he planted a church. He was there for three years, and so he knows a lot of people. He thought it would slow him down too much to get where he was trying to go, Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he went to a town just south of Ephesus, and he sent for the leaders of the church of Ephesus to come down, and he gave them this, like, last words. He said, hey, I don't know where the Holy Spirit's leading me, but I do know I'm not coming back. This is the last time you're going to see me. And so here's my, my last kind of speech. And he said, this, it was kind of a weird way to get about it, but he said, this is, these are the ways that you living your life will get the things you want out of your life. Because like I said at the beginning, we're bad at getting the things we want out of life. We think we know how to do it. We think we need to hold it. We think we need to control it. And what's crazy about my story is I had chocolate. I wanted to give my daughter chocolate. She wanted to eat the chocolate. And just because I had one rule, you can't hold it because it was just bath time and I don't want you to have chocolate over your hands before we go to bed. That one rule she couldn't follow and it, she was like freaking out over it, right? And I think there's so many people in life, God wants to give you this great thing and you want the great thing and like, oh, like nope, can't do it the way God wants to do it. And so what was the way God wanted to do it? Well, the four things we talked about last week as Paul was kind of going through his story is first, he surrendered control. Right? He was led by the Holy Spirit. Second, he didn't know what was going to happen. He trusted God, even though he didn't know what was going to happen. Third, it was through difficulty. Right? So he was surrendered to the Holy Spirit. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he actually knew it was going to be difficult. And he could see the path in front of him led through suffering. And then fourth, his main focus was just to stay on course. Right? Paul was consumed with not running a meaningless race. That was what we talked about last week. He just wanted to stay on course so that he would finish his race. So this was the beginning of Paul's message last week. Basically, you've seen my example of serving the Lord. Let's not waste our lives by running a meaningless race. Don't fall in love with being in control. Like, don't have to know the outcome. Don't be the person who is avoiding difficulty with their entire life because those things will cause you to run off course and run a meaningless race. What if we were the people that said, all we know is when we get there, God will be there. And that's enough for us. Like, all we know is tomorrow God's going to be there because he promised he would, and that's enough. Wouldn't that be, like, in the end, that's the thing you want out of life. Everybody longs for that type of peace, that type of acceptance, that type of purpose, that type of fulfillment. But almost nobody knows how to take hold of it. Now, I want to point out, Paul is talking about staying on course. Okay, before we get into this and kind of as a conclusion to last week, he's not talking about being perfect. I don't want anybody in here to be like, yep, 
Jared told us we have to be perfect so that God will be happy with us. That's not what we're talking about. Paul was talking about staying on course, doing the things God had called him to do. This is not a way for you to live out perfection and somehow earn your way into heaven because that's not in the Bible. We're talking about responding to the goodness of God in the way we live our lives. And that doesn't mean you're perfect. In fact, failure, consequence of sin, confession, repentance are all part of the race you're called to run. Okay, so don't think perfection when I say this. What we're talking about today is not talking about you being good enough that God has to let you into heaven. He's like, well, I don't really like you, but you lived a really great life. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're already responding to the God who saved us. And, and so this kind of four points of how Paul was running his race, this surrender to the Holy Spirit, surrender to a control, not his own, not knowing what would happen, knowing he's going through difficulty and being obsessed with staying on course and not running a meaningless race. That's how the speech started. And now we're going to look at the second half of the speech, the things he says to his leaders. And he's going to give some more instruction here. But I'm warning you ahead of time. You're probably not going to like it. Okay? I'm just heads up. He's not very nice in this part of the passage. So if you get mad, don't get mad at me. It's just reading what Paul said. Verse 26. Here we go. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, and being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul finishes uh, his speech here. And I, I picture, whenever I read about the Apostle Paul, I have these two pictures in my mind. Uh, one of my grandfathers uh, was a cattle rancher. Uh, down south of Lewiston and Clarkston area on the Grand Ronde River. It's like right on the border between Oregon and Washington. Uh, he didn't have a road to his house until he was like 26 years old. They didn't have electricity. Like, anyway, his firstborn daughter, they brought her home on one of those cable cars that they have to like go across the river on. And like, he's a cattle rancher. Like, this was, and so every time that guy told a story, I was like riveted. Because his story, like he had a crooked nose because he was a boxer when he was a kid. And then like he had scars on his face and stuff. And just like he wasn't, he was like a soft-spoken guy. He'd get fired up when he wanted to. But when he told stories, he was like, yeah, this one time a rattlesnake bit me. And like, like just like crazy stuff like that. The bear chased him one time. Like he's like, oh yeah, I had just crazy stories like you can imagine. My other grandpa, right, and it was kind of a step-grandpa. But anyway, he was almost the complete opposite. He had a recliner, and he sat in front of a TV, right? And he always wanted to tell me stories, and I didn't listen to any of them, right? He's like, hey, dude, come over here. No, 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 okay, yeah, right? Like, and he's trying to, and so in my mind, I got these two pictures of, like, 
grandpa cattle rancher and grandpa recliner, right? And uh, like, can you imagine, I know we don't have a lot of information in the scriptures about the apostle Paul and his family and if he was a grandpa or any of that stuff, but if he was, can you imagine the other grandpa in the room, <laughs> right? The grandkids are like, apostle Paul, tell us more stories. And the other grandpa's like, uh, like, this is no comparison, right? Paul's probably got scars on his face. He's like, well, that one time I was in prison, or that one time I was beaten to death, or like that one time we got shipwrecked, or when that poisonous snake bit me and I shook it off into the fire. Like, this is an incredible guy sharing his wisdom to these guys at the end of their life. And this is crazy interesting to me because he says this in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, Paul uses this word innocent. And I'm kind of like, wait, what? Innocent? Like, why would you use this, like, legal word? I'm, I'm thinking, Paul? Is Paul on trial here? Like, why did he need to declare himself innocent? This is, like, the toughest Jesus follower you've ever met in your entire life. He's got story after story of incredible thing. And, like, he was on trial. Like, there was some sort of thought that maybe he wouldn't be innocent. Like, he would be guilty of something. He would be guilty of the blood of these people. That's crazy to think that the Apostle Paul might not have done a good job in something, isn't it? Like, it's crazy to think that Paul might have gotten to the end of something like this, and there might be some question if Paul was on the right track. Paul declaring himself innocent here tells me that he has taken it upon himself, or probably more accurately, was led by the Spirit of God to bear the weight of responsibility for these people. Like he walked into Ephesus as he planted this church, was there for three years, and said there was a weight of responsibility laid upon him by God to take responsibility for these people in declaring to them the whole counsel of God. Right? And if he wouldn't have done it, he would have been guilty of some form or fashion of not doing what God had called him to. Now, first we need to identify that this is actually what leadership is. Leadership is responsibility. Leadership is exactly what Paul is doing here and is holding himself responsible for the weight, the weight of carrying the weight of responsibility for these people. Now, leadership is not primarily about privilege. And people get this messed up because people are like, I want to be in charge. Why do you want to be in charge? So I can do what I want. That's not what leadership is. That's not what's modeled for us with Jesus. That's not what we see modeled for us here with Paul. Leadership is not about getting power and control and privilege. Jesus set the example of servant leadership. And Paul here feels a weight of responsibility for these people to a point where he declares himself innocent and if he wouldn't have conducted himself in the right way, if he wouldn't have declared them, like, uh, declared to them the entire counsel of God, he wouldn't have judged himself innocent. And this is a huge thing to understand because, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, we all have this kind of not my problem mentality. Right? Somebody does something, like, not my problem. Right? You go to the park and some other kid is like doing some crazy stuff or like, Glad it's not my kid, right? And you kind of chuckle to yourself, like those parents can't figure it out. Or you see someone driving the wrong way down a one way. You just lay on the horn and be like, idiot, go the right way, right? And we do this whole, like, it's not my problem thing. But there's a weight to leadership where you understand something might not be your fault. It might not be your problem, but it can still be your responsibility, right? Hey, I didn't do this. This isn't a, a direct result of my actions, but it's still my responsibility. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's, 
he's not declaring like, hey, these people didn't get it. He stayed there for three years, faithfully declaring the word of God, even though them not following God wasn't his fault. He still held it as his responsibility. On the flip side, you know who lives or continues to live with a not-my-fault mindset? Children. Kids, right? Kids are like, it's not my fault. And so, so if you want to live your life that way, that's fine, but you're immature. <laughs> you can continue to think in terms of it's not my fault if you want, but it's a sign of immaturity if you don't recognize this kind of weight of responsibility. And Paul here is again leading by example. And he's saying, I've borne the weight of responsibility for you and examined myself with all humility. He said that earlier in the speech. Now you follow my example and evaluate yourself with all humility so you can rightly bear the weight of responsibility for these other people, the people that God has called you to lead. So Paul is saying to these church elders, you watch me lead, now you go and lead and carry the weight of responsibility for these other people. And if you're thinking right now, well, Good for these guys, uh, Jared, but Paul, or God has not really called me to lead anybody. I would cause you to re-examine that. Well, first of all, because if you're married in here, like, or you have kids, that's absolutely laughable, right? Because clearly husbands are called to bear the weight of responsibility for their homes. Wives have things that they are biblically called to bear the weight of responsibility for. In fact, there might not be a better example of, like, it's not my fault, but it is responsibility of moms staying home with their kids, right? That's like 10 hours every day of this isn't my fault, but it is my responsibility, right? Moms, amen? No? You don't want to speak up. But like, you're all day, that's what you're doing. I didn't do this, but I'm taking responsibility for it. I didn't do this, but I'm cleaning up the mess. I didn't break this, but I'm fixing it, right? That's the servant leadership that Paul led these people on. And we could continue on even down the line to include everybody because literally every Jesus follower is called to bear the responsibility for another that God has put in their life and the example that we set and the gospel that we preach. There is no Jesus follower in here who looks at a person and says, not my, not my fault, not my responsibility. Like, that's what it means to be a Jesus follower, to look around at the relationships you have and be like, hey, how am I called to set an example and preach the gospel in the way I live to this person? And just so you know, look at the language Paul uses here when he says, I did not shrink from bearing the weight of responsibility. That language that he says that I did not shrink from, you know what that tells me? It tells me that courage is required. You get that? Courage is required. So if you want to bear the weight of responsibility that God has called you to bear in your life, it's going to take courage. And I'll actually even say it's stronger than that. It's going to require you to have more courage than you probably expect. Like, if you're going to bear the weight of responsibility for the people God has put in your life and the example you set and the gospel you preach, it's probably going to cause you to live more courageously than you currently think it's going to. And I want to point this out before we move on because I think there's, when we say stuff like courage, there's a tendency to completely misrepresent the idea of courage. Sometimes we do this macho, like super aggressive, masculine courage thing. And I want to point out very clearly, and maybe I've been thinking about this a lot because we're coming up on this teaching where we talk about women and their role in the church, but it's been in my mind for nine months or so. Women are not exempt from a life of courage. Can you, can you hear me say that real quick? 
Because when I say courage, like the dudes are like, yeah, let's go beat someone up for Jesus. And the women are like, well, I'm not a leader in the church, so I'm not. No, no, yeah, false. There are great lives out there to be lived that God has called people into, and women are not exempt from that. There are going to be lives of courage. And, and, and here's what I want to point out. When Paul's talking about courage, he's not talking about aggressive, prideful courage that we all think about. What did he say when he said, I serve God at the beginning of this passage? He said, with all humility. Do you realize that? Humility is the most courageous virtue. It does not take one ounce of courage to pound the table and fire off a Facebook post and like something about some political issue or some social issue. Like you're the one standing for the truth, right? That, that actually doesn't take any courage. But to walk in humility and to listen and to love that's courageous. And Paul is about to test that theory with some real-world application, this idea that humility is the most courageous virtue. Here we go. Look at verse 28. He says this, talking to a group of leaders right here. What he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. What? That's how you're going to start this thing off? Right? Pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, some of you are sitting here and like, because of the way that we structure like our church gatherings and things like that, you think like a group of leaders from Ephesus came down to hear from Paul and maybe you're thinking like a big setting like this with lots of people in here and you're like, oh, like because of that picture in our mind on how like information gets disseminated in our culture, we think, oh, he's probably not talking to me. Because you could do that in a room this size, right? I say, pay careful attention to yourselves. And you're all sitting there like, no, oh, he's probably not talking to me. He's probably talking to that guy behind me because he looks like a sinner, right? We come into these types of settings and we think in terms of like big groups. This is not a big group. This is probably a small group. It's not told exactly how many people there were there, but let's say there was just like four people there, right? Four church leaders from Ephesus came down to sit in front of Paul. I don't know the exact number. Let's say it's small. It definitely wasn't like a thousand and Paul not only knew these people, but had lived with them for years. Knew their lives. Knew their kids. So, so I, in my mind, this is what I picture. Right? He's looking at these guys. He's like, hey, Jared, like, I know you. I know your kids. I know your wife. I know your business. I know what your house is like. And I, I just want to tell you, pay careful attention to yourself. It would take some humility to receive that, right? Right? If there's like four people in the room and he's like, one of you four is really going to screw this up. So you need to pay careful attention to yourselves. There's no like, he's probably talking to somebody else in that small of a group, especially for the four people that he knew well for those last three years. And I'll tell you right now, don't assume that in this room, the Holy Spirit is talking to someone else. How about this? Let's see if this helps clarify it a little bit. Uh, if you want to, in your Bible, write at the beginning of verse 28, right before the word pay, write your name. So if I was reading it, it would say, Jared, pay attention to yourself. But I could do that for anybody in here, right? Josh, pay attention to yourself. Don't wave at me. That makes it weird. I'm just joking, right? <laughs> Ethan, pay attention to yourself. Ryan, pay attention to yourself. Like, that hits a little different, right? 
It's just not a verse that like goes out into the ether and like it's for somebody somewhere. No, this is Paul speaking to leaders in a church and he's saying, you, you guys, I'm speaking exactly to you now. Pay attention to yourself. Do you see how important that humility thing is now? Do you see the necessity of having the courage to be humble? He says, pay careful attention to yourself because the danger is that you would run a meaningless race and lead others somewhere meaningless. Leaders, pay attention to yourself because the danger is you lead others somewhere not worth going. That's weighty, right? He says, pay careful attention to yourself because the danger is that you would do this and not even know you were doing it. Think about this. Paul is speaking to top-level leadership in the church in Ephesus, and he's saying it's entirely possible and even likely that church leadership would commit themselves to something meaningless. Like, as a pastor, that hits me really hard because I think that planting a church and leading a church is a good thing to do. Like, the exact opposite of meaningless. And Paul's like, Jared, pay attention to yourself because you could get off course and run a meaningless race and lead a whole church in running a meaningless race. And if you're a Bible guy and you know anything about the rest of your Bible, at the very end of your Bible, when we get into the book of Revelation, Jesus is actually going to write a letter to this church in Ephesus. And he's going to say in that letter, you guys left your first love which is really sad because Paul's warning them here. He says, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And actually, he's going to get down a little further, and he's going to be like, because among you, you're going to get off track. And what happened? They got off track. They left their first love. Keep reading in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, there's two things he points out here that necessitate us paying careful attention to ourselves. And I'm talking about church leaders here, but like I said earlier, it applies to all Christians as disciple makers. First, God really loves the church. You realize that? The Holy Spirit made these people overseers of a church that they do not own and that God bought with his blood, it says. Right? There's a little bit of a Trinity vibe there. If you're thinking like, when did God bleed? Like Jesus on the cross, okay? So you could take that Trinity road. I'm not going to take that road right now. But I am telling you that if he paid for his church with his own blood, that's significant. Like if I came to you after church, I was like, hey, I bought my wife a birthday present. Uh, I don't want her to know about it, so I'm going to have it shipped to your house. Is that cool? You guys are all nice people. So you'd be like, yeah. And like if a couple days from now, you're like, hey, the package showed up. I'm like, cool. Like where is it? And you're like, oh, I haven't gone out and got it yet. The mail guy came and left it on the porch. I saw it out there, but I haven't brought it in. I'd be like, it's worth $8 million. Can you go bring it in? You'd be like, why would you have an $8 million package sent to my house? Right? Like, not only is there like some extra level of pressure when it's not yours. You're like, oh, I can't just kick this thing or let the dog pee on it. Right? I have to take care of this. But now that I know it's incredible value, I get really like, would you please come pick this up so I don't have to worry about it anymore? That's what's happening here. Like this incredible body of people that Jesus died on the cross for has now been entrusted as believers to us to steward well and he paid for it with his own blood like it was an incredible price 
And then we got people out there like, oh, I hate the church. Well, God loves the church, so you're on your own on that one. Hey, oh, people are so just the worst. Well, God loves people, so you're also on your own on that one. Right? If you hate people and you hate the church, pray about that, okay? Because God loves people and loves the church and paid for them with his blood. Your calling, then, as a disciple maker is to care for the people God puts in your lives because God loves them. It's not your church, it's God's church. You didn't bleed for them, God bled for them. And with a proper understanding of that, it makes all the sense in the world to pay then careful attention to yourself, right? And the second thing he says is really direct. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, verse 29, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Okay. He just said, from your own selves, right? Now picture, not big room like this, small group of people, right? He's like, one of you four is going to really screw this up. He doesn't tell them which one. I just know from this group that I'm talking to, you're going to really mess this up. So can you picture if you're like one of those leaders, like you're sitting at home, you're working, somebody comes up like, hey, you're a leader in the church of Ephesus? Yeah, Paul wants to talk to you. Where is he? He's at this city about 30 miles away. Okay, you go in. Honey, Paul wants to talk to me. I'm going to go for a couple days. Okay, sounds good. You go down, you get this speech, you come back, your wife's like, hey, how'd it go? Uh, it was Okay. What did he say? Well, he talked about running the race and being surrendered to the Holy Spirit and how valuable the church was to God. And then he told me, I might be one of the ones that screws it up. He, he's actually said, pay careful attention to yourself because from your own selves is going to come these twisted things who draw people away after themselves. Is that, does that hit anybody else like like, like the idea that the most dangerous thing to the church is the people in the church or the leaders over the church. Like, I'm probably the biggest danger to this church. You're probably, husband, the biggest danger to your family. You, mom, are probably the biggest danger to your kids. Right? Keep going down the level of leadership. Right? That's, ouch. I told you you weren't going to like it, right? Think about if Paul said that like real clearly, like, hey, just thought I'd let you know, pastors, you're the most likely one to screw this up. That's why you need to pay careful attention to yourself. That's why you need to follow my example. And look at what he says at the end of this, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So... He doesn't say, you guys are going to screw this up. You're the biggest danger of your church, and you better not screw it up, or I'm going to come back and be really mad. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm going to check on you. I'm going to be like Santa Claus. I'm going to make a list. Come back around in two years and see how you're doing. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to trust you to God and to his word, and I'm going to have to leave it there because I'm never coming back. That's, like, that's an incredible thing to say because so many of us, again, like we talked about at the very beginning, we want control over these things. 
They're like, no, no, I want to I want to make sure they're doing what I said. And Paul here with the church that he loves and people he clearly understands God loves and died for is saying, I'm just going to trust you to God with this and with the word of God to wash over you and give you an inheritance. Like, I'm going to let the word of God do its work in your heart and God do what he says he's going to do and convict you where he needs to convict you. And that's where I'm going to leave it. And, and this is where I think there's a danger in our world today because we could do this thing where we read the word of God and it has no effect on us. We have, uh, well, I have this great example. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, I have a verse that I've memorized for probably 15 years. I read it in Bible college first. I've always loved it. Uh, Paul is writing a letter to the Thessalonians, church leaders, very similar to this setup here. And he's talking at the end of it about how to handle themselves in the church. And he says, hey, you guys need to warn the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. And I just love that idea that as the word of God goes out, it just it hits everybody in a different spot, right? Those who are proud and arrogant, it warns them. Those who are really downtrodden, it like lifts them up. Those who need help, it helps. And then it says at the end of it, be patient with all. And I've loved that verse forever. And I feel like this is the scenario that's playing out between me and God, right? I read that verse and I go, oh man, that's incredible. God's like, be patient with all. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great verse. And God's like, no, 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 be patient with all. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great verse. And he's like, no, no, be patient with all. And I'm like, that's a great verse. And God's like, you're impatient. Like I sent you this verse for 15 years to memorize and you're still impatient. And I'm like, oh, but it's a great verse. And like, we do this thing where we just read the verse. And we say that's a great verse. And we don't actually live what the verse says. And like, I'm dealing with that right now. I'm like, man, I'm really impatient. I told my son, I was like, man, I'm impatient. And he's like, yep. I was like, I've had this verse memorized for 15 years. God's like, be patient with all. I'm like, yeah, so good. Amen. Preach. Be patient with all. Yeah, I love it. Be patient with all. Like, sometimes we have this thing where the word of God washes over us and doesn't actually impact our hearts. And then we bring it back full circle. And Paul goes back again to what he started with. And he says, you've watched me and, and, and you know that I wasn't here to get things from you. Your relationships in life will change when people don't feel like you're out to get something from them. Like if you really want something for them, if you're not just out there to take. And Paul, in order to communicate that to the Ephesian elders, it says, uh, and I'm going to go faster here because I only got five minutes left. But he says, I wasn't here like taking tithe money and stuff from you. I was working to provide for myself so that you couldn't look around and be like, oh, Paul's just here to get paid. Paul wasn't out here to get rich. Right? Paul was here to love on these people. He says, you know that by hard work, I provide for myself and the guys who are with me. And then he has another great example set by Jesus when he says, it was better to give than to receive. Right? This idea of the word of God leading them and working in their hearts in order that they are generous, giving people. So let's take a recap of what Paul has told us. He said, follow my example. Set, another for, set an example for others by serving the Lord, being humble, not having to be in control, not having to know the outcome, maybe walking through difficulty, pay special attention to yourselves in humility because God really loves the church. You are the greatest danger to the church. Remember to be givers, not takers. And I'll trust that you do that with a clear conscience before God and in accordance with his word. 
I don't know if we brought it all the way back around, if many people would say, yep, that's the way to get the things you want out of life. To surrender to a, a spirit that's not your own, surrender to the control of God, not know where he's leading you, maybe he's leading you through difficulty, being humble, having someone say, pay special attention to yourself. How about you pay special attention to yourself? Right? Because that's what I feel like doing when somebody says that to me. Right? I just... My wife and I had this interaction the other day, and I was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so uses his phone too much. And my wife's like, <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking? Like, that was just a felt it, like, followed, like, you think I use my phone too much? And I was like, two seconds later, I was like, you know what? I'm studying this this week, and I just did it to you. Here's the crazy thing that happens. If you spend your life this way, this idea of being in surrender to a spirit, not your own, staying on course, not running a meaningless race, a meaningless race, living in a, having courageous, being courageous enough to have humility. You actually don't lose your life, you gain it. Okay? So you might think, like, if I lost control, my life would be over. Like, if I didn't know what was going to happen, my life would be over. Joke's on you. You don't know what's going to happen anyway, right? If I was humble, my life would be over. Like, if I actually had to have people say things about me and, like, actually fix what's going on, like, that would be so hard to live with. But you don't lose your life in those moments. You gain it. It isn't a burden of a race to run that Paul's talking about. It's a privilege. It's a gift to run this race. Paul is encouraging these leaders toward a life they will love more than the life they are currently living. Because it's in the moments of not knowing, being surrendered to God, not being in control, walking through difficulty, leading from weakness, being humble, giving yourself to serve others, being changed by the word of God, being led by the spirit. It's in those practices that you find out what it is to truly live. That's why Paul's last speech sounds like this. You don't lose your life when you surrender or are humble or confess or repent. You gain it. And Jesus says it would be really stupid then to trade that life back if it costs you your soul. Right? There's this, Jesus is talking about this whole thing. He says, what would a man give for his soul? And he goes through this whole thing. And the, the picture is like, it would be so stupid of a trade to go back. Like if you were doing what Paul said here, nope, I'm going to trade. I'm going to take being comfortable and you can have my soul. This is a stupid trade, right? Nope, I want to trade. I want to be prideful. I'm going to give you humility and you can also have my soul. What? I want to avoid difficulty and you can have my soul. What? That's, those are terrible trades. Don't forfeit your soul. Don't run a meaningless race. Don't waste your life. Pay careful attention to yourself to stay on course and know the joy of the Lord and the life he desires to give you if you surrender in this way. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word and uh, the ways that it leads us, Lord. And I don't know who's in this room, but there's probably some, some proud, idle folks, Lord, who haven't let the word of God affect their heart. I pray you would warn them. Lord, I pray you'd encourage the faint-hearted, those who feel like giving up, that your spirit would just give them an extra blessing of encouragement this morning, that they could keep running the race. I pray you'd help the weak, Lord, the ones that can't do it on their own and know they can't do it on their own. Lord, that you would meet them in that difficulty and show yourself strong in their behalf. Lord, and would you give us all the grace <coughs> to run a race that is not meaningless,